Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and peace of our Lord be with all of us gathered here in this time of worship, both in the sanctuary and in our family life center. And for those who are tuning in online into this time of reverence and adoration and mystery and love, we welcome you as well. Just a moment here. Can I just say how wonderful it is to have our kids in the room with us? Would you thank them for being with us today and for leading us in worship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to encourage you to find a Bible and turn with me to John chapter 15. There is a Bible near you if you do not have one. And if you do not own a Bible, we want you to take that Bible as a gift from us. As you turn to John chapter 15, we'll begin in verse one in just a moment, but I want to bring us all up to speed with where we are, where we've been, where we're going. We're in a study right now of the seven I am statements of Jesus as found in the gospel of John. Seven times when Jesus chooses his own words to describe his own identity and his own mission in the world. And the reason we've been examining these seven I am statements is because if you and I are to have any hope at all in understanding who we are and what we are called to become in Christ, we begin not with our own best ideas, what we begin rather with his own self-introduction. Because we've been told throughout this series that what people revere, they tend to resemble whether for their ruin or their restoration. Whatever it is that has captivated our most focused gaze tends to have a certain power over transforming us for good or ill. That means whatever it is that we give our better energies and attention and affection to, we begin to take on those very characteristics of the thing that has captivated us, yeah? And so we've been fixing our gaze upon Christ because Paul says looking at Christ has a transformational power that really you have to think of it like looking in a mirror. And on Ash Wednesday, I hung a mirror upon the cross to remind you, and every Sunday since then, I've played this clip to remind you that when we fix our gaze upon the cross, We can't simply fix our gaze upon the cross because in seeing him, in considering everything it took for him to empty his life out for the sake of humankind, we can't look at him without at the same time looking at our own brokenness and our own vulnerabilities and our own sin because it's our sin that placed him there. So as we fix our gaze upon Christ, in many ways we look at ourselves and we recognize that everything that caused him to remain upon the cross at times is missing in us. All of his compassion and grace 
all of his forgiveness, all of his mercy, his patience. When we fix our gaze upon him, we cannot watch him without simultaneously becoming aware of the absence of those things in us, or at least the sleeping nature of those things in us. And as we, as we fix our gaze upon him, Paul says that something transformational happens. The more we revere him and humble ourselves before him, it's not just that we learn to despise all the unchristly parts of us, but in many ways he transforms them so that those parts of us begin to disappear and the parts of his character that are meant to live in us begin to emerge to the point that along the way, slowly but surely, day by day, bit by bit, it's as if Christ looks at us and by the end of our journey, it's as if Christ is looking in a mirror. That's what Paul says. And if I wanna summarize the entire series in a single statement, I would say that I am who he says that I am. And that's important news today for somebody because I know for certain, I mean, I, you can, bank on it. Somebody came here today and if you were to fill in the rest of that sentence, it would not sound like that. It would sound like this. I am what? I am exhausted, frustrated. I am ashamed. I am angry. I am afraid. I am alone. What would you say if God were to ask you what you am? Somebody here might say, I am empty. And if, you, if you're there today, you're not alone. And it may be that this passage that we will study these next few moments was designed just for you. John 15, beginning in verse 1, because if you are empty, take heart. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You've already been cleansed by the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Today's I am statement is I am the true vine. Now, in order for you and I to appreciate the power of this passage that we've just read, we have to understand something about the symbolic power of vine imagery in the Hebrew mind. Vines featured prominently in in Israelite imagination. In fact, all through the Hebrew scriptures, especially in the prophets, we're told that that God thought of Israel as a kind of vine. Listen to the way it's put in the eighth Psalm. We hear these words. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. In Isaiah, we read these words. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. In Jeremiah, I planted you as a choice vine from the purest stock. Even Hosea has to say, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. In the consciousness of Israel, they were aware that God thought of them as a vine. Even in the post-exilic period before the New Testament, that intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments, we might think of it that way, during the Maccabean period, even the currency, the coins that were exchanged had vine imagery all over them. You should be seeing pictures of them right about now. Are you seeing them? Okay, I'm just not seeing them here. Okay, of course I can't see anything anyway. The coins had vine images to remind them of their own identity in God. Did you know that even around the top of the temple, we're told that there was pure gold vines with grapes and clusters. And if you wanted to, as a donation, your family could sponsor one more grape or a bunch of grapes, almost like, you know, buy a brick kind of fundraisers, right? And why? Because in the mind of the ancient Israelite, God had thought of them as a vine. God wanted to plant them into the world. See, God chose a family in the world, Abram. He comes to Abram and and he chooses Israel, not because they're any better or worse, any holier or more profane than the rest of the world or the rest of the families of the world, but rather he chose them because you got to start somewhere. And he starts with this one family in hopes that they may be planted and grown like a a vine to deliver all of God's goodness into the world, to deliver into the world the life-giving nutrients of God's mercy and justice and and, and generosity and patience and, and hospitality and forgiveness. But the trouble is, even as Israel was aware of this identity that God had hoped they might be the delivery system, the the vine for all the nations to eat the fruit of. In all the Hebrew Bible, most of the references to Israel as the vine are negative references. Even the ones I just read a moment ago, if we were to have continued in those passages, they end up judging or condemning Israel 
for being a vine that has grown dead, being a vine that has grown degenerate, being a vine that has grown wild and is now fruitless. So when Jesus stands up in front of a crowd and says, I am the true vine, Jesus is actually casting shade on his own religion. He's throwing shade on his own nation because he's, he's saying, look, because you have failed to live up to and into your identity as the delivery system of God's love and justice and mercy in the world, I have come to show you what it looks like to be the true vine. And the trouble is I meet people all the time who walk away from religion. And we talked a lot about this in the Losing My Religion series back in January and February. But so many walk away from the religion because they have learned and we have helped them do it too. We're culpable. We have taught people to plant their faith in an institution. We've taught them to trust the religion. We've taught them to put all of their hope in the church or the leaders of the church or the pastor of the church. And the flaw in that system is that everything I just named is flawed. The church is not the vine. The pastor is not the vine. The religion is not the vine. The only source of life-giving nutrient to give your life the fruitfulness it was intended to experience is Jesus, the true vine of God. Yes. So before we dig even deeper in this passage, we have to understand that there's a difference between all other vines and the one true vine. And the truth is, maybe you came here today and you were unaware that there is a possibility your life could explode with fruitfulness because you've given up on the possibility that your life can be any better than it is, any more hopeful than it is, any more joy-filled than it is. And maybe you need to hear somebody say that if you're connected to the true vine, your life will erupt in fruitfulness in time. But the trouble with that promise is we don't like the way fruit sometimes is grown. Did you notice in verse one and two, I am the true vine. My father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. Nobody likes to be pruned. Long ago when I would read that verse about he, he throws away every branch that doesn't bear fruit, it used to scare me. I used to think, oh my gosh, well then I better perform. I better produce fruit. If I don't produce food, I don't want to be thrown away. But that's not what the text is saying. See, take a look at this picture. Those of you who are uh, good at gardening. Take a look at the picture here. I don't see any picture, just so heads up to my, the people who helped me preach. I don't see anything on this confidence monitor. You should be seeing something green. Are you seeing something green? Okay, let's just go with that. Those of you who are working in gardening and those of you who are horticulturalists understand that what you're seeing between the two parts of that plant you're going to know what it's named. There may be an official name for it, this little growth that's sprouting up right between the two, but most of you will know the name of it. What do you call it? A sucker. That's right. A sucker. 
A sucker is a growth or an offshoot that grows on the branch just enough to draw some of the nutrients away from where the branch is attempting to go. Now, I'm mixing some metaphors here, but I stopped by our local nursery. And although this is not a vine like grapes would be found on a vine, I think you can get the point here. Along the way, this beautiful rose at the top is being fed through this stem, all the life-giving nutrients from the soil and from water and from all the minerals that, that, that the rose needs in order to grow. But along the way, there are these things that get in the way, these little, I don't know, little suckers. I gotta be cut off because if you don't cut off some of these little suckers, well, sometimes, well, down here is a big sucker. Sometimes these suckers well, they'll, they suck. <laughs> All of the life-giving nutrients out of the fruitfulness that is possible in the plant. And for every ounce of nutrient going to these other suckers along the way, that's less going to what is intended to be flowering at the top. It occurs to me so many of us, we live lives of fruitlessness and we know it and we're frustrated because of it. And it breaks our hearts because we look around and seeing, we see others who are living lives with teeming with fruit, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All those wonderful fruit that grow because they are connected to some life-giving energy, Right? But I believe some of us go through life fruitlessly, not because we don't want to grow, not because God doesn't want our lives to flower in beauty and meaning, but because we got suckers in our lives. Suckers that siphon off all of God's best for you. A sucker can be, well, a sucker can be that friendship you have with a toxic person and they're codependent. They need you all the time. They don't ever ask you about you, but they need you all the time. And every moment you spend with them is a moment you, you can't focus on the growth that is intended to be happening in you. Sometimes suckers can be overcommitment to so many responsibilities that we have. Listen, Nowadays, sometimes we get overly critical about, let's say, a generation of parents who are now raising children. And we say, well, they don't have any commitment. They have a commitment problem. They don't come to church as often as we used to come. They don't commit to the things they need to commit to. And, and I, I get it. I get where that's coming from. But can I just offer a word of grace here for just a moment? I don't think the generation that we're thinking about in our minds has a problem committing. The problem is overcommitting. It's because, oh my gosh, what I could do is, is I could get the kids involved in an off-season travel ball uh, team as well. And then when they're not playing, we can also practice. I can get an extra coach for them. And then also, well, of course we can spend one more night out. We have meetings every other night of the week. We got one free night, but why not? Let's just go ahead and fill that night up too. We overcommit and overcommitment can be sucking 
the very life that God wants us to experience in this life. Sometimes the suckers in our lives are comparison. And we, we look around at how this other family's doing and their kids look so happy and so successful. They don't have the prop, so we gotta compete and we gotta raise the stakes so that we can somehow have some sense of value all the while. It's unnecessary comparison. Do you know sometimes some of us, the sucker is our orientation to time. Some of us never take a moment in the right now, in the present, to allow, to allow the God given life juices of Christ to flow through us because we're always stuck thinking about what happened long ago. We get so stuck in the past and you know what happens in the past, past is where your regrets live. Others of us get stuck in the future thinking, well, as long as I can get around this corner, maybe on the other side of this hill, life will happen. We're so stuck in the future that we can't be fully present in the here and now. And whereas the past is where your regrets live, the future is where your fears live. And we spend so much of our energy worried about the past or the future that it's like a sucker in our lives. And we never realize that the Christ, the living Christ is before us attempting to feed us right now with everything it takes to flower and to grow fruitfully. And so some of us need some pruning in our lives. And some of us do, we get there. Some of us get to a place where we acknowledge and we confess Lord, as a branch, I can't prune myself. Branches don't prune themselves. Branches are they who yield to the power of the vine dresser to do for the branch what the branch can't do for itself. We come to a place of humility. Lord, in all humility and in humiliation, here I am. I recognize there have been parts of my life where I have allowed growths to siphon off all the best things you have in mind from me, I need you to prune them away. The trouble with God, the great pruner, is that in that spirit of humility, in that prayer in which we say, Lord, prune me, we also typically say, but look, at least I've got this. I mean, Lord, you can prune all these other suckers. I didn't want them in my life anyway. Look, get rid of them, Lord. They're just a drain on me. Get rid of everything that keeps me from growing in you. But Lord, while you're at it, don't forget, look. Look what I've done. And look what I have. This is the one thing out of all the chaos in my life. That's the one thing I can count on because it's sure. It's steady. I mean, I saw it blossom. I've nurtured it. There it is. And God says, yep, I know. And if you've ever been pruned by the vine dresser, the vine dresser doesn't stop with where we direct his pruning. And you get to a place where you hold it out and you say, God, look, that, that was everything. That was my mother that you took from me. That was my father. 
That was the perfect job for me. I had, I had trained for it, been educated for it, prepared for it, sacrificed for it. Then somebody comes in and restructures. And now, Lord, everything that I have ever hoped for is now pruned from me. And I don't have any control over it. This was the one thing. This was the one person. This was the one season in which I felt I had some kind of control in my life. And here you come. Cutting it all away. And the scripture reads, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it might bear more fruit. Beloved, what part of you are you so proud of and is in such control in your life that you know only when God prunes it can it grow. Yeah. Well, the trouble with pruning is that nobody likes to be pruned. But the difficulty with fruitfulness is that you can't grow in fruitfulness until you are pruned. And I just came by this morning to tell somebody that thing that you feel is now ripped from your life is not because you're unloved. And it's not necessarily because you're being punished. But it's because that's how love grows. Listen, I get it. I know what it feels like to have the only thing that you have under your control ripped from you. I get it. But can I tell you a story? Jesus one day goes down to the Jordan to be baptized by his cousin. He steps into the water and the way Matthew describes it, he comes out of the water and here's the words that we read. You are my son, the father says, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus comes out of the water and is affirmed by divine affirmation. And then as all who are around it hear that this is the one, this is the Son of God, the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. Do you know what happens next? In the very next verse, we read these words. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels waited on him. You know, there's a word in that verse I just read, the Spirit drove him out. The word in Greek is ekbalo. Balo means I throw, but ekbalo means I throw out, I cast, I hurl away. What Mark wants us to imagine is that on the day that Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, he is sopping wet with divine approval. And it's as if the Spirit lifts him up like by the nape of the neck and dripping wet with divine approval and heavenly affirmation, the Spirit, the very next move, hurls him into wilderness. Hurls him into wilderness. This is the Son of God. And if the Father treats his own beloved Son like that, to go from fruitfulness and affirmation and belovedness into wilderness, why wouldn't he do the same with you and me? 
See, the trouble is we think that when we enter wilderness seasons and we face the wild beasts that torment us through that wilderness season, a season of loss and pruning, we think that it's somehow because God has neglected us or that we are unloved or that we are being punished and it's not the case. If you're in wilderness now, it's simply because struggle is love's next step. Struggle is love's next step. You can't grow in love until something has been taken down unless a seed falls to the ground and just remains in your hand. It's just a seed. But if it falls and dies, then it becomes something more, Jesus says. See, what is it that must die in order for God to grow what is meant to flower in your life? The next part of the passage is maybe the most powerful. We read in verse four and five these words, consider it nothing, this is James actually, consider it nothing but joy, brothers and sisters, when you enter into various kinds of trials for the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you become mature and complete and lacking in nothing. Are you in a wilderness season right now? Have the very things that meant everything to you been stripped away from you? Understand that in a strange, mysterious kind of way, it may be that you are in the perfect posture for growth like you have never experienced before. But verse 4 in John 15 continues. Abide in me as I abide in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, clearly, the word that is dominant in this passage is the word abide. It occurs actually 11 times within six verses. And in the Bible as a whole, it's more than 180 times. In Greek, the word is minnow. Minnow is a word that's translated abide, but it means more than just abide. It means remain, stay put, don't move. To abide in Christ means that we remain in him day and night. Can I tell you that? Until we learn to remain, it's not that we have fruitless lives because we never come to Christ. We come to Christ. The problem is after coming to Christ, we just don't tend to stay there. We get drawn away by every seemingly urgent need that draws our attention and energy away from him. And then suddenly we've got all these suckers in our lives. And now we're no longer abiding in the way that fruit requires. In the mornings, Laura and I have a, a routine I have a morning ritual and an evening ritual that these days are saving my life. It's time with Christ, silence with Christ, praying with Christ, listening to Christ, reading from Christ. And sometimes in the morning when I do that, I am ready to take on the day. It frames the day well. I'm ready to charge in. And I do well until about noon. I mean, throw in a a couple of long meetings, throw in a couple of nasty emails and a negative phone call, and all of a sudden, like, Lord, where are you again? And we begin to operate out of the 
the ethos of the suckers rather than the fruitfulness of the vine. So the call is to not just come to Christ, but stay there. And that comes through day and night rituals that allow our consciousness to remain connected to the vine. But the next verse can be daunting. Verse six reads this way. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Now, when I was younger, I read that and it scared me to death because I thought, oh my gosh, if I don't produce fruit, if I'm not fruitful, then I'll be thrown away. And that is not true. If you are in Christ, nothing can pluck you from the father's hand. The truth is God will not throw you away. In fact, that verse about a fruitless branch is thrown into the fire is more descriptive than prescriptive. It's not a prescription. If you don't produce fruit, he's going to throw you away. It's more descriptive. If your life is fruitless, this is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. I picked this up in my yard yesterday. You know, yesterday we had some big wind gusts, didn't we? Knocked a bunch of things over. I had dead trees that had been dead for a long time, leaning on other trees to hold them up. And I went in the back and found all kinds of debris. And I just kind of thought that was cool. But then it became a parable to me. There's nothing that can grow from this anymore. I mean, I think about it and imagine what, how was it oriented when it was alive? I mean, there's all kinds of movement and direction and dynamic and flow. I can imagine the foliage at one point on this branch. I can imagine the fruitfulness. I can imagine it may have been a part of hosting a bird's nest and life teeming from it, but not anymore. And I just, I brought it this morning to ask you, is this your life? Is this you? And maybe the contours of it tell a story of long ago and fruitfulness of yesterday, but you worry that maybe you can never experience fruitfulness again. Can I, can I tell you the difference between Christ and this branch? The difference between Christ and this rose is that if you are detached you can connect again, you can. You can connect once again to the life-giving vine of our Lord. And it, and it comes by way of humility and confession. I was thinking about the lyrics of an old hymn that we sing from time to time, Monty. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. 